Failures by state and local law enforcement highlighted by a federal report on the Uvalde school shooting. It's got the DOJ stamp of approval, so now people might listen. We hear from families after the release, why for some it's raising new hope for answers and accountability. Ken Paxton says he's done fighting the whistleblower lawsuit against his office. The legal maneuver could keep him from testifying under oath, but the judge in the case has a different idea. And can anyone challenge Donald Trump in Texas? Our poll looks at what voters think of the top races for Republicans and Democrats as we get closer to the primary. Produced from the Capitol in Austin and airing statewide, this is the award-winning State of Texas. Hello and thank you for joining us. I'm Josh Hinkle. Police officers who responded to the school shooting in Uvalde missed numerous opportunities to change their response, and that cost lives. That's one key finding of a report released Thursday from the U.S. Justice Department. It's the most comprehensive federal review of the deadly shooting at Robb Elementary. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland traveled to Uvalde to deliver the report and spoke directly to families of the victims. I told them that the priority for the Justice Department in preparing this report has been to honor the memories of those who were taken from them. And I told the families gathered last night what I hope is clear among the hundreds of pages and thousands of details in this report. Their loved ones deserve better. The report looked into what caused officers on scene to wait 77 minutes before taking down the gunman who killed 19 children and two teachers. Much of the DOJ report covered things we've already heard, like that delay and communication problems among first responders, but there are some new details. Investigator Dalton Huey has been scouring through the report. What did you learn? So yes, yeah, so like you said, there was a lot of information in there that we were previously aware of, uh, but there were a lot of details that were associated with not just the incident, but the minutes, days, months afterwards that you know ultimately have continued to be problematic today. You've posted a lot of those details online in your story. Can you tell us about some of the key points that you focused on? Yeah, so you know, we focused on the failure to set up a incident command center. It was emphasized a lot in the report. Uh, it talked about the fact that there was just no leadership there that was taking action like they should have been, citing actually two of the officers' leadership positions uh, who had the training necessary to do it and they just didn't. Um, on top of that, we focused on the crime scene, you know, being contained and being, you know, being established the way it should have been to prevent any contamination of the evidence. The FBI offered their assistance to DPS and they refused. Um, as a result of that, a large storm came in. The evidence was not maintained properly and it contaminated all of that evidence and it cited, you know, weapons, ammunition, personal materials that were all lost as evidence to the crime. Um, and then in addition to that, we talked about the impact that the families of the victims had and how they were treated afterwards. It took four days for there to be any Spanish communications to them in the first place. Um, the report even cited the FBI uh, at fault at one point because the child, the child victim interviewees had no cultural connection to the children, which is, by protocol supposed to be happening. Yeah, I can imagine it was difficult with the Spanish language thing, especially because that community has so many primarily Spanish speakers as their first language. What else stuck out to you in the re report? The, 
FBI offered assistance multiple times to DPS. Um, they declined twice, the second time being with victim assistance and victim interviews for death notifications. They were trained in that. DPS were not. Um, on top of that, the fact that law enforcement, local and federal, are still delayed because DPS is refusing to cooperate with the evidence that they that they seized. And that's why we are here, you know, over a year later and some investigations haven't even started. All right, Dalton Healy, thank you very much. Thank you. Families of the children killed at Robb Elementary heard the findings of the report hours before it was released to the public. For some, it raises new hope for answers and accountability. Our Monica Madden spoke to families in Uvalde. They tell us they hope the report helps fuel their fight for justice. It's just, it's hard. Jerry Mata's family will never be the same. His daughter Tess was one of the 21 lives taken during the May 2022 shooting at Robb Elementary. People don't know the, the pain that it causes. Since the shooting, the Matas and other victims' families have sought answers and accountability for law enforcement response that day. It's got the DOJ stamp of approval, so now people might listen. Brett Cross's son Uzziah wanted to be a police officer, making the way he died even more painful. It's frustrating that, you know, he was felled by the same career that he wanted to do. Lives would have been saved and people would have survived. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland outlined the DOJ's extensive review Thursday, noting numerous occasions where police could have changed their response, like gunshots heard, repeated 911 calls from a student inside, and reports a teacher had been shot. As a consequence of failed leadership, training, and policies, injured and scared students and teachers remain trapped with a subject in the classrooms waiting to be rescued. The family's calls for consequences for the leaders who failed still left unanswered. Well, I'm, I'm going to leave that question for the DA. The Justice Department only has criminal jurisdiction where a federal crime has occurred. That it's something that we've been saying this whole time, but it was really good to hear somebody in that position, you know, finally be like, yes, children could have been saved. Haunting families in Uvalde, where their time stands still. It just hurts. It breaks your family, you know, it does. Monica Madden, State of Texas. Many of the facts outlined in the DOJ report had already been uncovered by Texas lawmakers. In the weeks immediately after the mass shooting, a House investigative committee issued a report on the shooting and the response. State Representative Joe Moody was the vice chair of that committee. Thank you for joining us today, Representative. Thank you for having me. So I want to get your thoughts on the report. Do you feel that the feds had access to more information or uncovered any new details? Well, look, it's a 600 page report and it's one that I've been able to go over, you know, during the last 24 hours. I don't see any major contradictions uh, with the investigative report that we um, we issued in the you know in, in the weeks following this horrific tragedy. Um, they certainly were able to have access to federal agents. Uh, which we we did not have access to and certainly i think yeah i think built upon the work that we did ultimately the doj report highlighted failures in how law enforcement gave information to families in the hours and days after the shooting 
The failures included a, a lack of information released in Spanish and death notices delivered by undertrained personnel and insensitive leadership. Is that something you found when investigating the response as well? Yes, absolutely. That was something that we we had uncovered as well. I do agree with the DOJ's assessment about how the information flowed uh, during the days, weeks, and months after the uh, after that horrific shooting. Uh, certainly, we heard stories about how some of the death notifications were given at the reunification center. Um, you know, you and I would would both hear those stories and would, you know, I, I think the only way we could describe them is is callous. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that was intentionally done that way, but the, the problem was uh, there was not a lot of coordination. You didn't have the right people in the right place delivering, you know, there's no, there's no right way to deliver um, such terrible information to people who have lost so much, um, but, but it certainly could have been better, uh, should have been better. And that was one of the issues that uh, we weren't able to really delve into fully in our report. Uh, but we certainly heard we certainly heard from some of the family members uh, about uh, the you know the lack of lack of care, lack of compassion, and and some of the real re-traumatizing events that took place in the wake of that tragedy. Well, we have the DOJ report on top of the Texas House report, as you mentioned. Do you think there will be accountability for that 77-minute delay before stopping the shooter? What needs to happen next? Well, I think there were a number of things that we did in this past legislative session regarding training, uh, but I think the I think some of the major takeaways from the DOJ report were how these agencies that are, you know, from the smallest school district police department to the federal government could have done better in coordinating their efforts, could have done better in um, figuring out who was in control, who was in command. My hope is that with this more detailed report on top of our report, uh, we're going to be able to continue to work on ways to better prepare for incidents like this, because quite frankly, uh, until we do something about the epidemic in this country uh, of mass shootings, we're gonna continue to have to confront these types of situations. And so if we're gonna continue to confront them, whether it be in El Paso, Sutherland Springs, Dallas, Santa Fe, Uvalde, that they be done better, um, that we were able to care for people in their darkest hour. All right, State Representative Joe Moody, thank you for joining us. The Texas Attorney General makes a move to end the whistleblower lawsuit against his office. Why, it could keep Ken Paxton from testifying under oath. The Arctic blast fueled record demand for electricity in Texas, but can the grid meet the state's growing need for power? What the grid operator is doing to prepare for the future. And the Texas primary is closing in fast. Why Democrats are unsure about who they want to run against Ted Cruz. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton announced a new legal filing that aims to end the whistleblower lawsuit against his office. Former high-ranking deputies claim they were wrongly fired after accusing Paxton of corruption. In Thursday's filing, Paxton's attorneys wrote that his office will no longer fight accusations from the whistleblowers. 
That would avoid a trial and prevent Paxton from testifying under oath. But as Will Dupree reports, the judge in the case has a different idea. A Travis County District Court judge signed this order, setting February 1st as the day when Ken Paxton must answer questions under oath. She did so just one day after Paxton sought to end the lawsuit brought by four former employees claiming retaliation for reporting alleged corruption. T.J. Turner represents one of those whistleblowers. I think the last thing Ken Paxton wants to do is put a hand on his Bible and tell the truth, and he's going to avoid that at all costs. Paxton's filing highlighted his belief that he did nothing wrong, noting that the Texas Senate cleared him in his impeachment trial. Still, Paxton's lawyers wrote, his office hereby elects not to contest any issue of fact in this case and elects not to dispute the plaintiff's lawsuit. That shocked one of the men suing Paxton, who sees it as vindication. And this is a total 180 that Ken Paxton's done. He is now saying he is not contesting our facts. The impeachment trial was based on our allegations. And now he's saying what we said is true. He anticipates Paxton appealing the judge's order. However, that last resulted in the Texas Supreme Court rejecting his claim. If Paxton does eventually go under oath, he could invoke his Fifth Amendment right and not answer any questions. But legal expert Mike Golden said that could harm a defendant in this case. The flip side is in the civil case, their refusal to answer that question gets used against them in court. And the plaintiffs can argue to the jury, he didn't answer this question because he knew the answer would be bad for him. Will Dupree, State of Texas. A new campaign finance report shows that Paxton used more than $2 million in political donations to pay legal bills linked to his impeachment. The filing with the Texas Ethics Commission covers the period between July and December. After a strong showing during last week's freezing temperatures, ERCOT is looking to the future, how they plan to adapt to growing demand for power in Texas. The main takeaway is just how many undecided voters there still are the Texas primary is in less than a month, and Democrats are unsure about who's taking on Ted Cruz. Our new poll shows who's in the race and why there could be a runoff. A round of frigid weather had many Texans facing sub-freezing temperatures last week, and the cold led to record-breaking demand for electricity across the state. Numbers from ERCOT show the previous peak energy demand record for January was set back in 2018. Back then, Texans set the record at just under 66,000 megawatts. Last Sunday, the state shattered that record with peak demand closing in on 71,000 megawatts. The next day, we shattered it again, topping 76,000. And another record on Tuesday with peak demand exceeding 78,000 megawatts. During those days, ERCOT put out a call for energy conservation, but the new records have some worried about future demand on the system. Politics reporter Ryan Chandler spoke with the CEO of ERCOT about how the state will meet the need for energy. You know, every time um, right. the supply and the demand uh, on the grid gets a little too close, I notice that wind and solar are always the first scapegoats or, or points of blame. Um, because maybe the sun isn't out or there's less wind than we expect. Um, but, you know, of course, back in February 21, natural gas was also hindered by the extreme cold as well. Can you kind of break down how all of the different energy sources that feed our grid uh, play into the overall supply and, and which are the most reliable this week? 
of it's a question of needing to have all the pieces of the puzzle working together in order to get through an event like this. What we want to do is just try to explain facts as to what's happening on the grid. And so, you know, those facts can vary based on what, you know, the season is and, and what's going on and what time of day it is. For example, during the winter, we're always going to see those peaks typically when the sun goes down and things get very cold. So, you know, obviously solar resources won't play a role in helping to deliver energy during those peaks in the wintertime. And then, you know, as we look at this week in particular, you know, we really needed all of the pieces and parts to work together. So we needed the thermal power plants to be available. We needed the batteries um, to all be available and ready to go. And then wind is the main uh, variable then that we look at that, you know, just depends on whether the wind is blowing. This for this event, the wind performance, it's the, the wind has been blowing a little bit less than what is seasonally normal this time of year. So that does help to contribute a little bit, but it's not blame. It's just a fact, you know, look, the wind blows, sometimes it blows hard and sometimes it doesn't blow hard. But the windmills themselves, they've seen really good performance in terms of very little icing. So we haven't been losing the available windmills to, uh, to that kind of an issue. Every December, January, February, People are still anxious ever since that February 21 storm. Every time the temperatures plunge, we start worrying, are the lights gonna stay on? Am I gonna stay warm? What are we doing as a state and as a grid um, in the next five, 10 years to make sure that maybe when the temperatures drop, we don't have to have this same conversation uh, next year or the year after that? But we, we certainly know a couple things are going to likely remain uh, you know, true. One is Texas continues to grow um, economically you know, year over year. Texas is doing really well. A lot of people are moving to the state. Businesses are moving to the state. So that helps to drive electric demand up as a result of that and you know, requires infrastructure investments across the board. We've seen the state legislature take up this issue and finding ways to try to incentivize all different types of generation to get developed including you know thermal dispatchable generation we're already seeing a lot of growth on the electric grid from renewable sources we're seeing solar and wind growing on the electric grid year over year we're seeing batteries growing very rapidly on the electric grid we're seeing that every year the the additions of those resources and they're making a big difference during the summers as well as during the winters and so if we can uh, add to that and balance that growth with some thermal dispatchal resources, which is what some of the legislation that was passed in the last uh, session enabled and incentivized, then we're really going to be able to get to that place where we know we're going to be able to address whether it's the hottest day or the coldest winter without having as many reliability concerns as we sometimes do today. You heard the ERCOT CEO refer to dispatchable energy. That focuses on electricity created by fossil fuels, which is considered to be available on demand. Texas lawmakers approved incentives to provide low interest loans to build more dispatchable power plants. The election cycle in Texas is heating up, with Democrats hoping to replace incumbent Ted Cruz. However, the question remains, who do voters want in his place? What the polls show coming up. We're just over a month away from early voting in the Texas primary, and new polling shows most Democrats are still undecided over who they want to take on U.S. Senator Ted Cruz. Politics reporter Monica Madden takes a closer look at what the poll reveals about this crucial race. The main takeaway is just how many undecided voters there still are. A Thursday poll shows 37% of Texas Democrats don't know who they want to support in their party's primary for Senate. You know, there's clearly a front runner in all red, but, you know, we would expect a little bit more tightening at this point. 
29% of voters plan to vote for Dallas Congressman Colin Allred. 7% say they'll back State Senator Roland Gutierrez. And 6% prefer Nueces County DA Mark Gonzalez. It tells us that uh, there's a likelihood that this is going to a runoff. In a hypothetical matchup against Senator Cruz, Cruz is in a statistical tie with both Allred and Gutierrez. Both of them stand out in the matchup against Cruz. Uh, it's, a, it's a fairly close race uh, between them. But Cruz does carry more points on top issues for Texas voters. Cruz wins with voters who say that immigration and the economy are their top issues. Those are the top two issues in the state. So. Cruz certainly has a leg up there. I would expect this race to uh, change in the coming months as we get closer to the general election, and especially once there is a Democratic nominee. Monica Madden, State of Texas. The poll shows that Texas voters expect a November rematch between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. The former president leads the Republican primary with support of 69% of voters in the poll. Nikki Haley is a distant second with 11% support. She pulled slightly ahead of Ron DeSantis. Trump also comes out on top in a hypothetical matchup with President Biden in November. Texas voters in the poll picked the former president by an eight-point margin. If that holds, it would improve Trump's 2020 election numbers. Back then, he beat Biden by six percentage points in Texas. Thank you again for joining us for State of Texas. I'm Josh Hinkle, and we'll be back next week to bring you an in-depth look at Texas politics.